everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. My guest today is again another VC, Krishna Viswanathan. He's a co-founder and partner at Crane Ventures, a London-based VC firm investing in building seed and early-stage enterprise and deep tech businesses solely focused on Europe. Crane Venture Partners has made 37 investments, including some well-known ones like Tessian, Onfido, H2O.ai, and some very exciting ones like Forecast, Virtuoso, Harbor, Silverflow, Gitpod, amongst others. One of the qualities that sets Crane apart from other VCs is their focus and hands-on approach to helping their companies with their go-to-market strategies, an area that's critical to all startups. Krishna himself is known to be a passionate advocate of European technologies, and it only makes sense that we found each other. So I'm very excited to have Krishna on the show, and um, welcome, Krishna. Thank you. I'm super excited to be on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Great. So Krishna, I think I'm going to start off by asking you why you started Crane Ventures. What gap did you feel existed in the market that warranted yet another VC firm to be created? Great question. I'm going to start by saying it's Crane Venture Partners as opposed to Crane Ventures. That's our official name. And we started Crane, Scott and myself, my co-founder, you know, we started Crane because we spotted uh, a, a couple of things that were about to really accelerate in the European environment. Crane was founded in 2015. By that time, Scott and I had been investing as a team for six years together, and I had been investing for just over 15 years as a venture capitalist. And we'd seen the evolution of the European entrepreneurial ecosystem to the point where the ecosystem was so much more developed than in 1999 when I started that uh, entrepreneurship and in particular, the creation of category-defining enterprise companies in Europe was going to kick into a completely new gear. So that was for us the opportunity that we spotted. However, what we also observed was two specific gaps that we were, we were trying to address with Crane. Firstly, with the growth and, and maturation of angel funding and pre-seed funding, founders could, could raise that, that first round of capital you know, with a a vision pretty easily now in Europe, use that capital well, build their first product, get, you know, zero to 10 customers, validate that the product that they built is solving a problem and then need the extra juice to take them from MVP, I guess, to product market fit. And and this is where many, you know, enterprise companies or founders were finding life a bit difficult, you know, a sort of funding gap, if you like, between seed, pre-seed, angel, and getting to Series A. Uh, because if you're an enterprise company, as you know, Anita, better than anyone, given your career as an enterprise marketeer, sales cycles are long. Customer discovery is somewhat imperfect, needs time, needs attention, needs thoughtful you know, prosecution. And, and oftentimes, when you're at that stage, five to 10 customers, zero to 20K of monthly recurring revenue, it's really difficult to persuade someone to cut you a $10 million Series A check or a $15 million Series A check, which is kind of Series A in today's parlance, right? So we said, well, actually, we don't mind that. We like long sales cycles. We will take early stage risk, product, people, market, but let's support our founders, not just with capital, but with that go-to-market expertise. 
because the other challenge we observed was our portfolio is filled with amazing product and technical founders and Europe has this great product technical talent pool, but oftentimes they're first-time founders. And, and so taking an MVP and scaling it and getting it to being Series A ready and you know, not making the obvious mistakes that you know, perhaps one might make if you haven't been through that journey before, uh, was the other area we could support them. And, and so that's why we built out beyond the investing team at Crane. We're fortunate to have some really awesome enterprise practitioners in customer success, in marketing, in product marketing, three areas that we believe are critical to making that jump from MVP to you know, post-product market fit. And also three areas uh, of skills which are oftentimes difficult to come across in abundance in Europe. Hmm. That's in, in essence what we do. Okay. So I want to give the audience a bit more flavor about Crane. So maybe you can talk about some of your recent investments that you've made and why you've made them. It'll give a a little bit more flavor to your focus and what you look for. Absolutely. So let's let's talk let's talk about Silverflow. You mentioned Silverflow a short while ago. Uh, really fascinating company. We bet three three founders, two ex Adyen. You know, one of whom, Robert Crowell, was the CEO at Argen. And they had the vision and, and the ambition to redefine the payment processing stack in, in the credit card environment by building a cloud-based SaaS you know, product for PSPs to connect any payment service provider to the acquirer network, but with a modern stack. And that required kind of a deep understanding of the entire credit card payment processing environment and how uh, acquirers work with issuers, how PSPs work with different acquirers and different issuers, uh, and so on and so forth, the licensing environments, et cetera. So you have to have that deep domain expertise, deep insight. Mm-hmm. Today, the software stack that people use in that environment is 30, 40 years old, basically. Mm-hmm. And re-architect it and build it for the modern data infrastructure and the modern cloud-based environments. Uh, so that's, a, that's an example of a company we recently funded. We led that round. We just announced it actually two weeks ago or so. I'm very, very excited about them. Contrast that to a company called Gitpod, which we also just announced. Fabulous. And it's a, it's a perfect illustration of this hypothesis we had of the depth of talent in Europe. Small team of three founders who we started, who've had a consulting IT consulting business, uh, and were also open source geeks, building product and doing consulting in the middle of Germany in a small town called Kiel, of all places. And through various different consulting projects they were doing, they came upon this idea to build a modern, wholly cloud-based development environment for any developer, so you could now develop code, write code without having to worry about the kind of the type of machine you have to run your development environment or configurations that you needed to remember or when you you know when and what you were doing last time you you logged into your development environment in in essence to try and give developers new completely new way to think about how they develop and focus their efforts on the coding rather than all the other pieces that kind of you know cut into your time as a developer and to do that in a very, uh, in, firstly, in a very open source way, and secondly, in a very cloud native way. Mm-hmm. So that's another example. Three phenomenal founders. You know, we met them, we heard their story, and we were like, "Wow, these guys are incredible! They've got you know an amazing insight into solving a really interesting problem." The bit that really captured my imagination about that company was 
when they were talking about how you could actually start to develop irrespective of the power of your machine, it immediately got me thinking about, wow, holy crap, this is a way to almost democratize development, make it, you know, turn anyone with access to a browser, really, into a coder. Mm. You don't have to have a high-powered Mac, you know, if you're sitting in, I don't know, somewhere in Africa or somewhere in mm. an underdeveloped environment and you've learned to code, let's say, you can become a developer, you can become a software engineer. And I love that, that sort of capability. So those are two interesting examples. Interesting. So if you look at these examples that you've given me, did you get involved with them when they had a product, when they had just a vision on slides or where they had a product with some customers? So yeah. when is it that Crane got involved? Yeah. Those two examples are slightly different. Gitpod, but when we invested, they already had the product out in, in the open source environment, in a pseudo open source environment. They had about 200,000 active yeah. users and they had started monetizing. But very modest monetization. And yes. obviously, our goal is to become you know, a giant company. Uh, Silverflow, actually, quite the opposite. Uh, they were building the product. They had been building the product quietly, bootstrap, just three founders for for best part of two years, self, completely self-funded. And the product really won't be you know, available for commercial deployment before Q1 because, uh, mm-hmm. because of the nature of the product. So the stack is more or less built. But to be a certified player in a MasterCard or Visa environment, you've got to go through a certification process. Mm. That's what they're doing right now. But, but no customers, no revenue, you know, really not, I would say not a GA product available. But mm. it was an area that we had some domain knowledge in. We had some interesting people in our orbit in our network mm. who could help us also, you know, take a close hard look at the value proposition. I had, I've, I've spent a bunch of time looking at different SaaS and cloud-based B2B mm. fintech companies. And so, so that's why we had, you know, great uh, conviction in going a little bit earlier than perhaps we might normally to back a, a great team with a, okay. with a great vision. But normally your starting point with a company would be they had a product, an MVP, and yeah. maybe they had a handful of customers. So they have some validation that they're solving a problem. Exactly. And then what you are going to do is take them from there and get them ready for series A. So describe to me, if I was in that position, how would you go about helping me with my GTM strategy? Yeah. Well, step number one, the first thing we always say, and, and it's, 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 it is interesting the number of times we come across this question from founders like, hey, you know, awesome. We're thinking about hiring a VP sales or a, or a new head of sales, you know, and we've just invested. And we always say, like, stop, don't hire a head of sales, do founder-led selling. That's, that's you know, invariably the first message we gave because our, our belief, our, you know, ethos is as a founder or a set of, you know, or a team of founders, you know, you really need to understand your customer really well, precisely who your customer is. Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes, the, the, your customer ends up being not the person you think it is inside the enterprise. You, mm-hmm. you know, it's not necessarily the most obvious person. So understand that, you know, in a, in a very visceral way almost. And the way to understand it is to do it yourself. Right. And up until, you, you know, the point you have depends on the product, of course. 5, 10, 15, 20 customers, depends on the type of product and the type of sale. Once you've done that, you as a founder or a team of founders 
can now say, well, I have my first kind of sales playbook. I know, mm. you know, I know what works. I know what a, a, an ideal customer kind of looks like. At that point is when we advise teams to maybe bring on an AE or a senior AE, you know, and maybe even an SDR and start mm-hmm. to apply a little, a little bit more scale into the selling process, right? That's, that's one thing we do a lot. And, and we help our teams firstly do less songs. The, the thing that goes naturally with that is also helping teams, the teams in back, understand the value of identifying use cases mm-hmm. uh, so that you can, again, focus your selling effort on not a variety of use cases, but one or two, occasionally three use cases, just to get that clarity and then repeatability, right? You know, ultimately, right. to get maximum return for every dollar you invest in sales and marketing, if you haven't understood what I just described as a founder, you're going to end up spending too much money or wasting quite a lot of the early sales and marketing investment. So that, that's one thing we do. I want to touch on CS too. Scott and I were, were fortunate that we met Rav Daliwal, who's part of our team, about a year and a half, I think, or maybe two years after we started Crane. We run an event every year. We call it Flight. We started this in 2017, in fact. And Flight is an event designed for seed and Series A enterprise founders in Europe, just for founders or, or execs of, of enterprise companies at that stage. And we curate a list of speakers to talk about go-to-market. The entire event is just on go-to-market. Sales, marketing, CS, product marketing, different flavors of things, right? Uh, and we just did our fourth edition, which is a fantastic event. Rav was one, a speaker in one of our events. And I listened to him talk about CS and the impact and power of CS from his 20 odd years as, you know, as a, as a CS professional. And, in, and it was like, you know, the penny dropped for me because I'd never really appreciated what the power of CS could be. Right. Until I heard him talk about what he does, why it's, you know, powerful. And it dawned on me that actually one of the most important things that uh, at least our portfolio or any enterprise founder can do is to un- you know, understand the power of CS before you have your first customer not after you have 10 or 15 or 20, because the impact of CS is not just with, you know, if, if you have 10 customers and then you hand it over to CS, that's not really CS. You know, if you bring CS in from day one, before you close the deal, understand the onboarding journey, understand actually who all the buyers are, understand the difference between the budget holder and the user and the implementer. Right. You're going to get so much out of that relationship for more than just one year because then the renewal becomes, if you get the onboarding right, you understand yeah. the usage, you understand how to trigger usage, then the renewal becomes easy, the upsell becomes easy, and the ability right. to retain that account and grow your NRR, your net revenue retained, becomes more available basically. Right. That, that's interesting that you say that because I would have thought that in that very early stage, even the onboarding and the customer success is something that the founder needs to be intimately involved in to understand how usable is the product and is it going to give value in the long term and is it going to retain the customer? So I'm, I'm in, it's interesting that you're saying bring the CS person there. Well, so I say we brought him on board. Most okay. of our companies you know, wouldn't necessarily have the maturity to have a full uh, got it. person okay. at that point. Depends on where they are. Maybe I'll take a step back Anita, and, and talk about the three pillars that we focus on in yes. the market. CS, yes. marketing, product marketing. Please. Uh, 
we we believe that those are three very core principles for for the companies that we invest in or any enterprise company really in order to go from mvp to product market fit but oftentimes it's difficult to find the talent to afford them and or to to you know to implement some of the key principles behind each each uh, discipline so we said well why don't we provide that why don't we bring on board three individuals or more today it's three <laughs> who are world class practitioners in those three domains I've mentioned Rav. Rav was the first CS hire at Yammer and also the first CS hire at Slack. Uh, and he built the CS teams there. We brought on board, we were fortunate to be able to onboard someone called Richard Snee. Richard, he, he spent his career, he is a Bay Area veteran enterprise software marketeer. Uh, was the CMO at Pivotal, the CMO at Greenplum, the CMO at Ironport, started his career at Silicon Graphics. And, you know, has this amazing ability to help companies figure out their messaging and their positioning hmm. and, and therefore how you think about category creation. And then the last person, last but not least, you know, a most recent joiner to our team, a guy named Anil Lakhani. Anil is a more, you know, more focused on the, on the technical aspects of go-to-market, on, particularly hmm. on, on marketing and on product marketing. Again, an amazing career. He was a VP marketing at Honeycomb, at Signal FX, amongst others. Uh, and so these three guys, you know, we make them available to our portfolio to support them mm. with CS or with messaging or with, you know, hardcore, you know, marketing tactics for go-to-market or, mm. or how you kind of, you know, overlap product marketing and marketing in order that they can hopefully avoid the landmines. As, as mm. Scott, my co-founder likes to say, avoid the landmines, avoid making the mistakes that oftentimes derail your journey from, you know, seed to series A. Got it. Got it. So let's dig into each of these um, yeah. three areas, because like you said, they're really pivotal to the, the GTM machine working properly. For me, product marketing is the messaging and the positioning and the content, the heart of the rest of the marketing engine. And the rest of the marketing engine is really around brand building and lead generation. Yeah. That's how I think about it. What is your advice to early stage startups? What do you work on? Yeah, and now, now you, know, you asked me a question, which I feel a bit guilty about answering because I'm, I'm obviously stealing the wisdom from Richard and Anil and all these guys, but I'll give it a go. At a high level, at least. Yeah, yeah, I'll give it a go. So, firstly, product marketing. You know, the thing that that's, we're still um, amazed by in some respects, I would say, it's actually, product marketing is probably the single hardest capability yeah. to find in Europe today. That's the first challenge. I would say to most of the teams we work with, you're going to find it hard to find someone like that. Yeah. And so what we've done is, uh, we have someone on our team who can help give you some support. And he has obviously a broader network and we can pull in people. We've also actually done a, a little bit of a scope, scoping of where some of the more interesting product marketers live in, in the European ecosystem. And we pull them in and you know introduce our companies to some of these folks who I like advisors, right? Uh, it's finding this kind of relationship and, and link between the product vision that the founders have and actually telling that in a compelling way to the customer in the yeah. customer's language, right? And, and that's the temptation for many of the founding teams that we've come across because they're very technical and product-oriented is to talk about features and Correct. functionality and how much better it is or faster it is or quicker it is or more intelligent yeah. it is. Customers don't really care about that, right? What they really need is to understand why your product solves their problem in a way that, you know, in, in a way that is relevant to their day-to-day -day lives or yeah. in language that, you know, they're familiar with. Right? And that's what we try to help with. So it sounds to me like 
in the marketing realm, at least what you are getting your companies to focus on is really the product marketing bit, which is telling the story, the messaging, the positioning. That's the first thing that you tackle on the marketing side. What about lead generation? What is your advice? What have you seen as successful ways of generating your initial pipeline? Yeah. We're big believers in the use case approach. If you can figure out and have a clear perspective on what the most relevant use cases for that early go-to-market phase is, then demand gen becomes a much more tractable problem because you're not going to be just spraying and praying. Right? You, you have clarity. My investor's perspective, when I meet founders who pitch me, I say, okay, tell me, do you know what the one or three or five defining characteristics of a perfect customer for you looks like? If you see a lead at the top of the funnel and they have these three characteristics, then it's a, yes, we're going to work hard on this. But if one out of those three isn't present, forget about it. You know, churn it out of the funnel and focus on the others, right? If you understand use case and ideal customer profile, then lead gen becomes also much easier to tackle in that early Go to marketplace. It makes perfect sense. But do you typically get SDRs to help generate leads, or are you using more digital marketing? I think you know this, but you know better than me. Really, it really depends on the product, obviously, and and the target customer. Most of our companies are focused are enterprise, so mid market, upper mid market, and then large enterprise is where we mm-hmm. focus. And when you take that focus in terms of size of customer, then depends on. The, the sort of ACV, if they're large contracts, very much enterprise heavy, you're not going to do SEO and, and more kind of paid stuff. You, you're probably going to do some form of account-based marketing and, and hyper-targeted outbound, yeah. but also maybe content-driven inbound, you know, but very specific and sophisticated content. So I do think it does vary in, you know, by product and type of product and type of target customer. But that, notwithstanding that, even for companies in our portfolio where they're targeting, let's say, mid-market or upper mid-market, paid channels and, and some form of paid program does bear fruit. It's just, again, understanding you know, how best to optimize that right? you know, in order to get maximum return for lead gen at the top of the funnel. So we talked about marketing and you made a very interesting point in the beginning about how people tend to hire a a VP of sales first. And then you say, well, actually, you need to get a marketing person in so that you get this fit and the messaging correctly. What are some other mistakes that you see founders make? So most of the time we see companies hire someone to lead sales too early and someone to lead marketing too late. I wouldn't call them mistakes because that sounds too harsh. It's maybe just jumping the gun a little bit, it's maybe a, a small misstep. It's not that if you hire mm. a head of sales six mm. or nine months too, too early that he or she can't deliver. If you believe in uh, founder-led selling for that early phase, then the, probably the maximum impact you get your go-to-market spend next off is to bring someone in to help you with that marketing piece. Whether mm. that's demand gen, whether that's brand positioning, whether it's product marketing, will really depend on where you are in your journey with your product and your and your customer. A good mm-hmm. return on the investment you've made is whether you're going to get maximum return for your investment, right? And, and that's the real point that we try to help our companies think about. What else? On the go-to-market front, I think it's what I said earlier. Because product marketing is, is still this, you know, l- less well-developed skill base in Europe, 
technical founders translating their product into language that the customer understands is probably the second thing that we, you know, we see frequently not done well enough. <laughs> Lastly, and, and this might be a generalization, but I, I personally think it's, it's still the case today. If you take two companies, enterprise companies, addressing uh, the same problem with you know, great product, and you, one of those is a Bay Area company and the other is a European company, this is oftentimes what you'll find. The European company will have a much more mature, much more developed product and a you know, really underdeveloped positioning and marketing story around that yeah. and you know, go-to-market yeah. story. Then the Valley equivalent, Bay Area equivalent will be the reverse. The product is oftentimes catching up with the marketing story. I, I'm not necessarily suggesting that one approach is better than the other, but that's just an observation, right? Bay Area companies are always you know, forward-looking in terms of how they create the narrative, own the narrative, yeah. create the category, define the category, and the product is oftentimes six or nine months maybe you know, behind that narrative. Yeah. The European company is the other way around. Yeah. I wonder if that's because, like you said, there's so much more expertise in the Valley around product marketing or whether the founders are just more aware of the story and narrative. And so they think about it much more. I don't know if it's the DNA of the founder that's different or whether it's just the availability of that talent in Europe versus Silicon Valley. I'd say availability of talent is definitely a key element. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's the DNA of the founder. I would describe it as the maturation. The founder gene pool, if you like, in the Bay Area is much more mature because it's been through multiple cycles. There's repeat founders and, and repeat founders coach and mentor the next generation of founders, right? And so you have this systemic learning. Europe is, we're now entering that phase, right? We right, have right. repeat founders. We have successful founders mentoring and investing and backing the next generation of founders, backing engineers from their last company who left to start a company. We finally, we've kind of got that ecosystem. We are going through that right now, which is why I think it's the exciting point in the European enterprise landscape and, and why we see all these you know interesting companies getting funded and scaling and, and growing fast and so it's it's more of that rather than there's a difference in the dna of the founder i think the founder dna the same anywhere in the world to be a founder who wants to take on either a giant incumbent or create a new market or revolutionize a technology stack a piece yeah. of the technology stack you have to have a particular a set of capabilities and belief self-belief yeah. And, and that's the same, whether you're in the Bay Area, in Berlin, in London, or in right. Beijing, or in Jakarta, it's the same, right? You have to have okay. an entrepreneurial instinct. Okay. So one of the things that I also wanted to ask you about was the difference between a SaaS business versus a deep tech business. Mm-hmm. I know that Crane invest in both. Does the go-to-market differ when it's a deep tech product where it requires this data element to be fed into it to actually create the full product? Is there any difference in terms of what you advise for go-to-market for a deep tech product versus a non-deep tech? Yeah. So first thing we as a firm think about SaaS as a business model. And so you could have a deep tech company that decides to monetize this technology in a subscription manner as opposed to an embedded play, right? You know, so embedded, you know, deep tech companies could could go down an embedded route where it might be unit-based 
revenue model, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's a licensing fee or a royalty or you know some other mechanism, could be a full system solution, which may not be a recurring revenue model or might you know might be uh, finite revenue with yep. some add-on on a recurring basis. But that's I want to just make that distinction. Firstly, then when we talk about deep tech companies, it's back to okay, how does the customer consume what you've built? Yeah, are they consuming it as a subscription business? Okay, if it is cool, then you know there's a largely replicable you know playbook. I'll give you a good example. We have a company in our portfolio called Stratio, which is machine learning based. They do predictive right. maintenance and and for the automotive space, they sell to people who own large fleets of trucks yep. uh, or buses to predict uh, failure before failure happens with the vehicle. It's, you know, ex- the, the bus is going to break down because the brake pads are, you know, at the point of failing. And by capturing data with, a pro- you know, with, with their own proprietary data capture solution that's plugging into every single sensor on the vehicle and collecting that data 24-7, 365, they observe performance mm-hmm. metrics and they can predict and say, hey, you know what? You need to take that bus off the road. It's, I know it's not scheduled for maintenance, but you need to bring it in now because it's going to break down. That product has hardware, has firmware, has software, has machine learning, right? Correct. And a UI. Yeah. But the customer signs up to a SaaS proposition. So the go-to-market is being built and designed as if it was selling a subscription software proposition, basically. Uh, so it's more the difference maybe in the product building that is more relevant rather than in the GTM. Exactly. Okay. So if I think again of this stage before Series A, they have a certain amount of money invested that's going to take them and prepare them to Series A, right? What are the things you look at from a metrics perspective in this first stage to see if the business is heading the right direction? I, I pause because I'm, I'm now envisioning all our portfolio companies and trying to figure out which is a good example to use. Again, it does vary. I think at, at its simplest or at, its, you know, ba- at the basic level, sometimes when it's too early looking at you know things like CAC to LTV and, and, and those sorts of more conventional SaaS ratios don't necessarily give you a right, the right picture because it's just too early. For me, with a company that's going from zero customers or five or 10 customers and trying to get to that million dollars in you know recurring revenue, right? that's the sort of mm-hmm. almost the, the, the leading indicator for firms when they start to get excited about a you know, company raising a Series A. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's half a million, sometimes 750, but let's say, mm-hmm. let's use that million dollars in ARR. For us, what we try to understand and what we try to encourage our teams to think about is customer discovery and, and what are the key metrics around customer discovery that you know allow you to know that uh, at the point where you get to that half a million to million dollars in recurring revenue, you absolutely know what your return on every dollar of, of investment in sales and marketing translates into in terms of revenue, right? Mm-hmm. If my ACV is just say, for argument's sake, 50K, and you know, every every AE carry a quarter of uh, a million bucks a year, you start to build out your scale up sales execution model, right? So it's that sort of metrics, understanding contract size, loading of your sales, AE, how you break that down on a quarterly basis, obviously levering in sales cycle Mm -hmm. to get a clear demonstrable model that when the Series A investor says, hey, you know, I'm going to invest 10 million bucks now, okay, and seven of that is going to go into sales marketing, Mm -hmm. uh, that's going to deliver 
the revenue growth that you're projecting. And what metrics do you look at to determine when they're ready? Yeah. For Series A? Like you said, a million dollars in ARR. Our perspective, that million dollars in ARR is really the kind of lighthouse we we have our companies think about. Okay. At that point, you can say with absolute confidence as a founder pitching to a Series A investor, I know what my ideal customer is. I, I can show you that it's not luck. I have 10 or 20 or 50 customers. I've probably also shown some renewal and maybe even some upsell, right? So, so that's the sort of maybe more qualitative and high-level quantitative Got it. metrics that we try to get teams to build their plan on. More granular than that, it's sales cycles are uh, you know are, are key element, you know, especially when you talk about enterprise. And I think the other metrics that it will vary by company, but as they start to deploy capital in lead gen and demand gen, it's understanding the effectiveness and the conversion between top of funnel to sales accepted leads. What's that ratio? And is that at the right level? Uh, and then sales accepted leads to close, again, is that at the right level? If you have you know, enough data to support that in a, in a very robust fashion, then you're at that point where you know, a Series A investor who is metrics-driven, who is metric-focused, which most, most of them are, right. can start to really you know, dig into your underlying backward-looking metrics and say, yes, that's consistent with your assumptions for your plan for the next two years. Right? So those are some of the metrics we focus on. Has there been time when in your portfolio, they haven't reached metrics for Series A, but they've run out of the money you've given them? And what happens then? Thus far, we haven't had an example of what you just described. We have had a couple of companies fail because they just you know, didn't manage to get to product market fit. The MVP turned out to be not the right product. Okay. They pivoted. Yep. The pivot didn't work. And Got so, it. you know, that's it. They ran out of right. yeah, basically ran out of runway, right? So, so that we've experienced so far. We haven't yet, touch wood, so far had an instance where they've run out of puff before they they got to the right metrics to raise a Series A. We have had you know, that said, we've had companies that are making good progress, and then the existing investors, angels, and syndicate investor syndicate VCs bridge the company because we can see that they're on the right path. So we have had that okay. in the portfolio where we see that they're at 500K of ARR. It's going to take another you know, nine months to get to a million, but they only have three months of cash. So let's do a, a seed extension, a convertible, a, a bridge round you know, to give them the runway because we still believe in the value proposition, the product and the size of the market. Got it. How do you get a company ready for their series A, what are the checklist of items they need to have to raise a successful series A? I think number one, clarity of messaging, you know, product messaging, company messaging. Number two, clarity on the return on the series A capital relative to revenue scale and growth. And then it's actually a compelling story. How do you Mm -hmm. tell the story? why you are going to win versus all these other players in the market, why you are the category leader, right? You know, why are you creating that category, defining the category, teasing out and getting that perfect articulation of the messaging, linking the, the founder's product or technical vision with a level of simplicity 
that literally almost anyone and everyone can understand. And from a Series A investor's perspective, what is the most important? Are they all important equally, the things that you just mentioned in terms of your own momentum, the market growth, or is one or the other more weightier for a Series A? That's a good question. By and large, all venture investors are looking for outsized returns, right? So the thing that they care about most is, is this company going to dominate a large market and win that market? And is there evidence to support that they could be the winner? That's what people care about because if you're making a $10 million Series A investment, you're really looking to make a 10x return on your on your capital. In order to do that, the market has to be way more than a billion dollars in size. And this company you're investing in is going to be the winner. Okay. Well, I'm going to take your attention from the GTM specific questions and focus a little bit more broadly on Europe. What are you seeing as the big trends happening in Europe? Where are the opportunities for European tech, European enterprise tech? I have big opportunities. So I don't. I don't necessarily think that the opportunity in Europe is limited to certain types of propositions. I think it's broad, and it's across the enterprise landscape. Certainly, if you take machine learning and automation, Europe is littered with talent. Right, the Blue Prism was the first really yeah. company that that pioneered RPA, and then UiPath came along and you know kind of took it to the next level. That's one area we've got a lot of expertise in. But actually, you look at machine learning, you look at quantum computing, you look at security, uh, you look at B2B fintech, we have depth and, and, and breadth of talent across all those domains. Mm. Uh, and the thing that we're also very excited about, the proliferation of open source approaches to building product mm. and how communities come together to define new products. You look at a company in Holland called Spring Source, which spawned Elastic, and it's actually spawned a couple of other companies as well. <laughs> Exonic is another company that came out of Spring Source. These are all propositions that develop based out of initial kernels of talent, right. identifying how the next wave of development and developers are going to work and addressing different pieces of the developer mm. landscape, if you like, and stack. Yep. You know, if you take more, let's say, research-driven environments, then certainly machine learning and quantum are two areas where there's lots of long-standing research heritage in Europe, in academic mm-hmm. conditions and in other areas. And, and those are now just really starting to bubble to the surface. And we're seeing companies spawn out of these research organizations in those domains, whether it's ML in the UK, UCL has a strong heritage, has spun out a bunch of companies. Uh, same, of course, with Cambridge and Oxford, etc. You take quantum computing, Oxford has a strong heritage, but so yep. does Delft University in, in Holland uh, as an example. So I think it's, it's quite broad. So if, what do you think is stopping Europe from getting the next Google and Airbnb, companies that have defined industries? What's yeah. stopping Europe from spawning these type of companies? I, I would say that we haven't quite produced a, uh, a Google or a Facebook in terms of uh, scale and size yet. Uh, but we certainly have, you know, Spotify, consumer company. But yep. we look at UiPath, 
private company or Elastic, now public company. These are very, very large enterprise, category-defining enterprise companies mm. that you know, are global category-defining, you know, global category leaders, right? Mm. So I do think that we will see some uh, or many of these new generation of enterprise champions in Europe continue to grow. Zendesk, I, I, I haven't looked recently, but I think it's 40 or 50 billion is that right, market cap. Maybe it's 30 billion. Adyan is a great example, right? Reimagined the payment stack, got to 50 billion, I think, uh, in market cap. I haven't looked recently, but clearly, you know, they are the leader in their space. I think we, we are now entering that phase where we've gone from the billion dollar exit being the target to 10 and $50 billion companies, and soon, hopefully, $100 billion companies. At this point, the only $100 billion business that you can point to that is an enterprise company that is European is SAP, has been around for a long time, right? For a long time, But I yeah. think in the next five to 10 years, we will see a $100 billion European enterprise technology company uh, emerge and, and, and dominate its category. Uh, and okay. so I don't think there's anything holding us back anymore. Talent is here, capital is here, willingness, risk appetite, yeah. and also a mindset. The mindset that actually we're going to build the yeah. world's leading company in, in our space and yeah. dominate. So one of the criticisms I've heard of the of the European tech scene, especially the funding community, is that yeah. we don't have the same risk appetite here that that maybe there is in China or in US, especially where the technology is much more unproven. And so I've actually met a lot of entrepreneurs that find that it's really hard for them to get capital in those early stages. They have to de-risk and prove quite a lot before they can get capital. I can't say to you that it's not true. What we can certainly say, or at least I can certainly say, is that the European venture investment ecosystem is still in the development phase, right? So we're definitely not as mature as the Bay Area, clearly. And so you will therefore naturally see that the risk appetite is not quite the same. I think that's a fair statement. China is a very different kettle of fish, right? The market and the growth there is just beyond anything anyone has seen. So the size of the market, the growth potential supports that type of risk taking. Europe has been a bit slower to develop, but I'd like to think that in the next five to 15 years, the acceleration in our risk appetite will quicker, the gap will close. I'll give you a couple of interesting examples, uh, a couple of spin-outs from Oxford University in the quantum field. Uh, I, I met them, you know, some fantastic companies, really interesting companies, quantum motion, quantum machines. I really like them. And they got funded. It wasn't a perfect fit for us, but they got funded, even though their product horizon is six, seven, eight years out. You know, and so that is happening. We're definitely seeing those sorts of things, and I think it will just get better and better. Okay, great. I could go on and on, but I think I'll stop here. <laughs> but before I do, maybe the audience can get to know you a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, I understand you have a very interesting background with your father being of Sri Lankan origin, your mother being Indian, and then you grew up in Malaysia, and then you moved here. Tell us a little bit about events or people that helped you in becoming the venture capital investor that you are today. Interesting question. My grandparents, both my uh, father's parents and my mother's parents, 
emigrated from in India and Sri Lanka to Malaysia. And so my parents were born in Malaysia. I'm certainly someone who exhibits all the characteristics of a, a child of economic migrants. My grandparents emigrated to Malaysia in search of better jobs, you know, better income and, and, and also a means to support their families back home and the families they were building in their new home. And you get instilled with a certain set of values and drive. And I think that's probably a key element in terms of how at least I've developed. I was fortunate that I was given the opportunity to then do my university education in the UK. And that was, for me, quite an important of my my own personal development, being exposed to a completely different culture and way of thinking and way of learning and and way of interacting with your peers. I got my first job here in the UK as well. And that was, again, quite a defining set of experiences, interacting with people who really took an interest in helping me develop personally and professionally. Mm. Uh, I think I think those were the those were probably the, the key things. Any books that impacted you? It can be fiction, nonfiction, doesn't yeah, have to be. I used to enjoy reading perversely biographies of in particular of China and Chinese leaders. Where I grew up in Malaysia, in my school, most of my classmates were, were of Chinese origin, Chinese descent. Mm-hmm. Malaysia is a smelting pot of, of course. You know, indigenous Malays. Indians and Chinese at the three biggest, you know, components of the population. And my wife is actually half Chinese. And in Malaysia, the most successful entrepreneurs were Chinese. And these were, by and large, they were billionaires, very successful, very unassuming, and mostly had no secondary education. Forget about tertiary education. Yeah, yeah. And they had this amazing entrepreneurial instinct. Yeah. And this drive and commercial will to succeed that... You couldn't teach that, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so that sort of thing was quite fascinating. This is when I was young, much younger. Yeah. Actually, the leaders who were responsible for how China evolved as a country through the communist, the communist yeah. era, era, Mao Zedong, Joe and Lai, all these guys, wow. and how that was kind of instrumental in shaping China then, and then how it transitioned to Deng Xiaoping. So some of that was kind of interesting, but more, more for me, more how they operated culturally and intellectually and and how that translated into society and how that either drove the society or the entrepreneurial instinct. I think from a Malaysian entrepreneurial context, it was actually survival instinct. And many of these Chinese uh, you know, uh, immigrants too came to Malaysia with nothing, saw opportunity, really grasped it with two hands and built amazing businesses. I'll, I'll mention one quite interesting. I recently read his biography, actually. Probably one of the most successful entrepreneurs Malaysia's ever produced, a guy named Robert Kwok who started as a trader. His family emigrated from China to Malaysia. He started as a trader in sugar and then in rubber and in, in a bunch of other things and, and then built this conglomerate yeah. that spans hotels, trading, travel, leisure, and a bunch of other things. And wow. started from a little small shop trading trading goods basically yeah it reminds me a little bit of the ambani story as well when yeah, they started with the, with, the, with the silk and then they are this conglomerate it's interesting how in asia especially you have this this kind of conglomerate story coming out of um, one family anyway well thank you so much Krishna, for this interesting and informative conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I'm really looking forward to releasing this episode. And thank you so much for being on the show with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I definitely enjoyed it. I hope I didn't talk too much. My wife always says I talk too much. So I hope I didn't talk too much. <laughs> no, I think, I think it was perfect. <laughs>